0: welcome to episode 96 of the Random Thoughts podcast. That's R-A-N-D-U-M-B thoughts.com online. I am your host, Darren O'Neill. And on today's show, we're going to take a little bit of a detour and hop off of the COVID Express and stop talking about what's going on in the world right now and take a look back at the transformation of Tom Terrific, Because it was 35 years ago yesterday, August 4th, 1985, that Tom Seaver, one of the best pitchers ever to pitch in Major League Baseball, got win number 300 of his career in Yankee Stadium, New York City, the Bronx. And I was there to witness the event with my parents, of course, because I was only 15 at the time. So I wasn't like jetting off on my own. Although I do remember jetting off to New York for this particular trip on People Express Airlines. And most people, if you're lucky, you've never heard of People Express. I'm sure you can go do a search on this right now and be horrified, maybe. It was one of these first low-cost airlines that would charge you for everything. I think if you wanted to breathe, that was extra. But it was the only time I was ever on an airplane that had the little clips on the seats to collect tickets like they do when you're on a train like here in Chicago going from the suburbs downtown on the metro train. You know, they got the little clips. You can put your tickets when the conductor comes by, collects the tickets. That's what they had on good old People Express back in 1985 going from Chicago to New York but it was a big thing in Tom Seaver's career win number 300 it is a milestone that has become less and less something that guys do because nobody's pitching that long the money is way better now the careers are shorter these guys put the work in if I can use a cliche but Tom Seaver became On this week in 1985, the 17th player to be a 300 game winner. Since then, a few more have done it. There are 24 total players right now to give you an idea of how many people have 300 wins in their career if you don't follow baseball at all. And the last guy to win 300 games was back in 2009. Randy Johnson got his 300th win. So, again, careers are a little bit different now. The money's a little bit different now. Guys just don't have the longevity that they once did. But Tom Seaver is a guy who had a very interesting career. I mean, we can go through the usual stats they'll throw at you if you're talking about somebody's baseball career. And when it comes to Tom Seaver, he was the 1967 Rookie of the Year, he was a three time Cy Young Award winner. He did pitch one no-hitter with the Cincinnati Reds, and he's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And at the time that he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, he had the highest percentage of votes on the ballot, going in with 98.8% of the ballots having him selected. And I don't make a whole lot out of that percentage, and Tom Seaver does not as well from things I've heard him say about it. Uh, Since then, Ken Griffey Jr. had 99.32% of the vote. Derek Jeter went in in 2020. This year with 99.75%. And in 2019, the great closer from the New York Yankees, Mariano Rivera, went in with a 100% vote. And do I think Mariano Rivera is a better player than Tom Seaver? No, but the time at which you're going in makes a big difference. And I wonder, really, if Mariano Rivera would still get that 100% vote from the baseball writers now that he's being friendly to Donald Trump. And I said, we're getting away from all the politics. Just curious about that particular thing. But Tom Seaver, in an interview, when he was asked about that, Because at the time, he was the highest vote getter with 98.84%. And he said, you know, really, when you look at this list of guys, including guys like Hank Aaron, he's like, there's no way he considered himself a better player than any of these guys on the list, including names, you know, like Babe Ruth and uh, that ilk of player. Tom Seaver didn't have that big of an ego. He had an ego. There's no question about it but he believed that that percentage was just kind of a sign of the times for when each individual player was elected to the Hall of Fame more than really meaning anything. Just being there was what was important to him. But the interesting thing about Tom Seaver is that he did have a long career and he was a guy That was able to make adjustments in order to continue to be successful. Before he was a major league baseball player, and this is something that I didn't know as a big Tom Seaver fan going into doing this episode. He spent some time in the Marine Corps reserves, and he was quoted back in 2003 as saying, "There's one transition point in your life, and that was it." if I'm to credit anything, it was the Marine Corps. I was a good student after that. I had focus and an objective, and I grew and I matured. The article I read on this said back in 1962, Seaver considered himself a runt and a late bloomer. He shipped out to boot camp in Southern California as a 17-year-old, and he knew from that day his life was going to change. Seaver was quoted as saying, I didn't know if it was tough or not. All I knew was I had someone yelling at me and I hadn't even done anything yet. I went, oh, this is what my dad's been talking about. I can remember saying that to myself to this day. And this again, going back to 2003, reflecting upon his time as a 17 year old kid going into the Marine Corps Reserve during the Vietnam War, he served an eight year commitment with the Marine Corps Reserve Including three months of boot camp, three months of active duty at Camp Pendleton outside of San Diego, and another five and a half years of reserve obligations. He said, quote, I'll tell you what, you walk out of graduation from boot camp three months later, and you're damn proud of yourself and proud of that uniform. So here's a young Tom Seaver, gets through high school, does his time in the Marine Corps reserves. And then after that, he enrolls in Fresno City College. And it turns out the University of Southern California was recruiting him to play baseball for the USC Trojans, but they weren't really sure if he was worthy of a scholarship. This part of the story really reminds me of the one of Michael Jordan, the greatest basketball player of all time. And if you want to disagree with that, that's fine. I don't believe you. Michael Jordan, greatest basketball player when he was in high school didn't make the varsity team right away, and here we have Tom Seaver, who went on to become one of the 10 or 15 best pitchers ever to pitch in Major League Baseball in a college before giving him a scholarship. They're like, well, you know, we're not really sure if he's good enough, so they sent him to pitch for, get this, the Alaska Gold Goldpanner's in Fairbanks, Alaska in 1964. I didn't know that there was a team called the Alaska Gold Panners I knew they played up there because when my parents went up to Alaska years ago, they caught a game because there's parts of Alaska where it stays sunny, pretty much light all day long. It's great. They have like a midnight day game, you know, because this is what you can do when it's light all the time. But they sent Tom Seaver back in 1964 to Fairbanks, Alaska to see how well he pitched to see if they wanted to give him a scholarship to come pitch for the University of Southern California turned out he had a stellar season in Alaska and uh, he even pitched in the national tournament game hit, hit a grand slam and then he was awarded a scholarship to USC as a sophomore for USC he posted a 10 and 2 record and then he was then drafted in the 10th round of the 1965 major league baseball draft by the Los Angeles Dodgers. When he asked for a $70,000 signing bonus, the Dodgers passed. In 1966, Seaver then signed a professional contract with the Atlanta Braves, who had drafted him in the first round of the secondary January draft, the 20th overall. However, the contract was then voided by the baseball commissioner at the time, William Eckert, because Seaver's college team had already played in two exhibition games that year, although Seaver hadn't played himself. One of the rules back then, it may still be in effect, was that if you were going to sign a college player, it had to be done before the season started. And since there were exhibition games, I don't know. I guess you could really make the case that there weren't any games played because they were preseason. But the commissioner at the time said no. So they voided the contract. So Seaver then intended to go off and finish his college season. But because he had signed a pro contract, the NCAA said he was ineligible. So here you go. You have a whole lot of fun here that he signed a contract that Major League Baseball said was invalid because the college season had already started. So he says, "Okay, that's fine. I'll go back and finish the college year, which was just about to get going. And then the NCAA says, well, no, you signed a pro contract even though that was voided, you signed the pro contract. So we're not going to let you play in the college season as well. So luckily, Seaver's father complained to the commissioner about the unfairness of the situation and uh, threatened a lawsuit. I don't know which one did more, guessing maybe the lawsuit more than anything else. And the commissioner then ruled that other teams then could match the Braves offer. The Mets were subsequently awarded the signing rights in a lottery drawing among the three teams, the other two being the Philadelphia Phillies and the Cleveland Indians that were willing to match the Braves terms. So a very interesting start to a major league career. And you have to wonder just how different those Phillies or Cleveland teams at the time could have been if they would have won that lottery for Tom Seaver over the New York Mets. But Seaver hits the Mets in 1967 and goes on to win the World Series with them in the 1969 Miracle Mets season and would never again be on a team to win a World Series title. So that's an interesting part of the career to winning one that early. But he did take part in the 1967 All-Star Game, his rookie year, and he had an interesting part in this game. And this was one of the more interesting stories I read about Tom's early career. It was the 1967 All-Star Game long before the games counted for anything. They were strictly an exhibition game, but they played the whole damn game to fruition. There was none of this frou-frou stuff like they have this season in Major League Baseball where we put a runner on second base when you get to the next inning game, 10th or 11th inning and on. But this ended up being a 15-inning game, and Seaver was called in to close the game out after the National League took the lead in the top of the 15th inning. Tim McCarver, Hall of Fame catcher, this was the one and only time he had ever caught Tom Seaver in his career, but Tom Seaver struck out Ken Berry to end the game. McCarver comes out to congratulate him. McCarver rubs his hand and he shows it to Tom Seaver later telling the story. McCarver says, quote, I mean, it was buzzing. I'm looking at my hand and go, that is the hardest I've ever caught any one pitch. Seaver, a rookie at the time, wasn't buying it. Come on, you caught Gibson, Seaver said to him. You catch Gibson. Yeah, McCarver recalled replying, but he's never left my hand white like this. If you're not a baseball fan, maybe you've never heard of Bob Gibson, but he was one of the biggest, baddest pitchers of his day. Just had wicked stuff, would knock down his grandmother, you know, these, one of these kind of guys that had the reputation that if uh, you were a little bit too far in on the plate, if you got too many hits from him, he was going to come up and in, and you better damn well like it because he's Bob Gibson. The Cardinals and the Mets had a pretty big rivalry. Tim McCarver was still the catcher with the Cardinals in 1973, and he recalled a story about the Tom Seaver-Bob Gibson relationship. Gibson, uh, for the record, once doubled off for Tom Seaver But he also struck out 15 times. It was one of those strikeouts that McCarver recalled this story, saying it was April 12, 1973 at Busch Stadium. The Mets and Seaver were there for an afternoon game. The baseball season, of course, had just started, but the two teams had faced off against each other in the spring. In that game during the spring, Tom Seaver's teammate John Milner wrapped three doubles off of Gibson. And this was later in the spring because he got up there for a fourth at bat, which tells you how much spring training has changed as well. Because when I went to spring training games back in the 80s and 90s, if the starters were in there by the fourth inning, something was wrong. But this was back in the day when spring training was a little bit different. John Milner got up there for a fourth at bat. And of course, Bob Gibson, he plunked him. Didn't matter that it was a spring training game. Didn't matter that the games didn't count. Didn't matter that those three doubles didn't count. He plunked them because that's what Bob Gibson did. Seaver apparently took note, according to McCarver, and the way he recalls this game at Bush, Bob Gibson steps in for his first at bat and Seaver comes up and in with intent. Gibson, his ankle already sore, spun away from the pitch to avoid getting hit. And then he spun back to spit some accusations at Seaver. You're not that goddamn wild, McCarver said Gibson shouted. Neither were you when you hit Milner, Seaver challenged. Colorful comments followed, it says uh, here in the article. And Tim McCarver says, quote, Seaver the only pitcher that I recall who ever retaliated with Gibson. Now they're the closest of friends because this is kind of what happens in a sport like this when guys are actual competitors and they're doing it for the love of the game and they're doing it because they enjoy their job and they take it seriously. They respect somebody on the other side who is giving it 100%, who takes it as seriously as they do. But in the moment, you know, it was a pretty brave thing to do for Tom Seaver because Bob Gibson's a pretty big, bad dude. But it all seemed to work out, and it showed that Tom Seaver is a competitor. It showed that he will back his teammates, and it showed more than anything that he would not back down from a challenge, and he would not back down from a fight. A lot of people were intimidated by Bob Gibson. Obviously, Tom Seaver not one of them, or if he was, he certainly wasn't going to show it. So Tom Seaver spends over 10 years with the Mets to start his career. And then he was traded to Cincinnati in 1977, something that didn't really sit right with the fans in New York. And it makes sense because Tom Seaver was the franchise. He was the best pitcher that they had, one of the most marquee players ever to play for the organization, so much so that after six years with the Cincinnati Reds most of them pretty darn good. The last year, a little bit uh, subpar, but these things will happen in a long career. He heads back to the New York Mets for what turned out to be a subpar 1983 season, but he was a guy that was a stabilizing force and he was on the team to help the young pitchers figure out how to pitch in the major leagues because he could tell you he was a guy that understood pitching. He was a very analytical pitcher, He didn't rely solely upon talent. He knew the mental aspects of the game, and he played it like a grand chess champion. He was always going a few positions, a few moves ahead, and that was one of the reasons why he was one of the greatest pitchers of all time. But after that subpar season with the Mets in 1983, this is where it brings Tom Seaver into my backyard, because the Mets made a mistake. They ended up leaving Tom Terrific unprotected in the free agent compensation pool, meaning that any team that wanted him could grab him. They didn't believe anybody would because he was an aging pitcher. He wasn't coming off a great season. He had a large contract for the time, but it turned out the Chicago White Sox were a team that was willing to do things a little bit different. Jerry Reinsdorf and Eddie Einhorn had just owned the team for a couple of years and they were willing to take a chance, so they grabbed Tom Seaver, which caused New York, the fan base of the Mets, and Tom Seaver himself to be a little irate about the situation. The quote from Seaver at the time was this, the Mets certainly made a mistake by not protecting me. You don't have to be a Harvard Law student to figure that out. They admit it. I've got a lot of thinking to do for the next 24 to 48 hours. My alternatives are to retire or not to report and wait for the White Sox to trade me or to negotiate a contract and play in Chicago. I honestly don't know what I'm going to do. I'm healthy, but there are other things I love besides pitching, leaving New York, leaving my family. That would be the tough part. Luckily for all of us White Sox fans, Tom Seaver was convinced to spend a little time here on the South Side. And even though he was only here for three seasons, they were definitely some memorable seasons. It paired him with Hall of Fame catcher Carlton Fisk, another guy let go from a team that didn't think he had much left in the tank when he was only about halfway through his career, but that's a different story. And besides Seaver's 300th victory, which happened in a White Sox uniform, On August 4th, 1985. He also achieved something very strange for a starting pitcher back on May 9th, 1984, as he picked up two wins in the same day. And that was due to the fact that the White Sox were involved in the longest game in major league history in terms of time of play. It took eight hours and six minutes and it had to be suspended. Thus, it was completed the next day. It began on May eighth, with fourteen thousand seven hundred and fifty four fans in attendance at Comiskey Park. The two teams played seventeen innings before the game was suspended at one in the morning, with the score tied of three to three. There was an American League rule that no new inning could begin after that time, so the game was resumed the next day. It actually went back and forth with some lead changes, and it wasn't until the twenty fifth inning that the White Sox were able to win it. Tom Seaver pitched the top half of that inning, thus giving him a win, and he was the scheduled pitcher for that day's game, and he went out and won that one as well. Some pretty wild stuff by baseball standards, no doubt about it. When it comes to Seaver's 300th win on August 4th, 1985, it was surreal being in the ballpark and Yankee Stadium, the house that Ruth built, the original one, And watching this game go down because obviously Tom Seaver, a New York Mets favorite. So New York Yankees stadium was filled with a lot of Mets fans. Of course, a lot of Yankees fans and a few of us White Sox fans who made the trip from Chicago to see this particular game. My mom, big fan of Tom Seaver, her favorite player of all time. And no matter what, we were going to be In the stands for his 300th win, if we can make it happen. I mean, we were hoping, of course, that it wasn't going to take a whole lot of tries because back at that time, you know, it's 15 years old. The summers were usually spent going on at least one or two road trips with the White Sox, staying usually in the same hotels, seeing the players, getting autographs, having a whole lot of fun. So the fact that it was Seaver, a Mets legend, going for win 300 in New York Yankee Stadium was was just kind of kismet, and the crowd as the game began, I mean sure the Mets fans in attendance they cheered Seaver, but the Yankee fans were just as vehement about booing him because they didn't want him to win this on their sacred turf. There' was no doubt about it the Yankees fans and the Mets fans, just like here in Chicago, where the Cubs and Sox fans don't really like each other much, same thing in New York, and it was a slow build, shall we say, as the game progressed. And it was a packed house. It was Phil Rizzuto day at Yankee Stadium. So there was a lot of excitement in the air before the game even began. There was a lot of pageantry. There was a lot of things going on. And you could feel it as the game progressed with Seaver, a 40-year-old on the mound, fully in charge. Going the distance, how the crowd turned from early in the game where there was equal parts cheers and boos, once we got into the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning, I think even the most hardened Yankee fan realized the history that they were seeing. And no matter what you want to say about Yankee fans, I do believe they are fans of baseball. I do believe they understand the history and they revere the history because there's so much of it when it comes to the Yankees. Even though Tom Seaver was a hated New York Met for most of his career and now pitching for the Chicago White Sox when he was winning this 300th game, they realized they were seeing history and they realized that this was a guy out there on the mound that was doing something that only a handful of athletes had ever done. And by the end of the game, I don't think any of those 65, 70,000 people in Yankee Stadium were not on their feet cheering Tom Seaver as he won the game and then jumped into the arms of catcher Carlton Fisk. The game was vintage Seaver. He was a guy who knew how to pitch, he knew how to get in the players' heads, and he knew how to be three steps ahead. And the whole game is on YouTube. If you're ever interested, You want to kill a few hours. Tom Seaver's 300th win in its entirety is one hell of a ball game to go back and reminisce a little bit about. Again, only 24 pitchers in the entirety of Major League Baseball have won 300 games. Only 21 have pitched perfect games. And I was there for one of those too when my buddy Mark Burley pitched a perfect game for the Chicago White Sox. But having 300 wins, I don't know if it's something we're going to see any more in Major League Baseball as the starting pitchers don't go as far into games. They're pitching on more days rest. They're worried about throwing their arms off. And Tom Seaver is one of the guys who never understood that because usually the more you pitch, the better you got, the stronger your arm was. But today's mentality in baseball is that we have to protect the pitcher, which is a line of crap. But that's where another podcast as well In his three seasons with the White Sox, Tom Seaver had 33 wins. Of course, there's that magic number again, if you're a No Agenda fan. 28 losses, a 3.67 ERA, and 17 complete games in 81 appearances. I'd like to see starting pitchers have more complete games. But again, baseball, what's going on? So Tom Seaver leaves baseball when he's in his early 40s, and he decides to reinvent himself yet again. He goes on to tell the story about once in his, about the height of his career, his brother-in-law asked him the question of what are you going to do when this is all over? And Tom Seaver says, quote, off the top of my head, I said, I want to go back to California and raise grapes. I didn't know that much about it, except that's what I wanted to do. And that is exactly what he has done. He bought some land in the Napa Valley area of California, in Calistoga, California, and now has about three and a half acres where he's growing some grapes, which they're turning into some really good wine. And a few years back, he likened the act of growing grapes to that of pitching, saying It is equal parts, physical and mental, and it takes a whole lot of attention to detail. And he must be doing something right because the wine that he's making is really good. And it's not something you can get in a store. He's doing it all himself through a mailing list, which we tried getting on years and years ago. And it took a couple of years to be able to uh, make our way up to the top of the list to be able to buy even a couple of bottles a year of this stuff. The latest bottling uh, was 150 bucks a bottle, I believe but it is continually highly rated by wine spectator and people that know wine much better than I do. We figure it's a nice, easy gift for my mom. Again, Tom Seaver was her favorite baseball player. She likes wine. It's a match made in heaven. Every year, the vineyards make enough grapes to do about 4,800 to 6,600 bottles. So it's very limited of the GTS Cabernet Sauvignon GTS, of course, George Thomas Seaver. At first, he didn't want his name anywhere on the bottle. His kids convinced him it should be there somewhat. So rather than calling it Tom Seaver wine, like a lot of these guys do when they have a celebrity name and they start making wine, that's all being sold on the name. Seaver didn't want that. And I appreciate that as well. He wanted the wine to stand on its own. This wasn't about him. It was just about him doing something that he loved. He spends the days going out in the fields with the dogs, tending to the plants, getting dirty. He said there's really nothing better. There's nothing more calming. And it seems like one hell of a way to spend the day. There's no doubt about it. But that's why the wine isn't called Tom Seaver. It's called GTS as a compromise with his kids to have it represent him, but not bring a whole lot of attention that it is a Tom Seaver wine. Although if you see a bottle, they are very cool. There is a baseball in the embossed little metal at the top of the bottle. So there's some nice little details there that let you know the provenance of the wine and where it came from. Now, it's interesting because Seaver talks about having to save up the money to be able to buy that land, to do what he wanted to do. When he was done with baseball. And if you go back and look, it is almost appalling when you see what baseball players, basketball players, football players are all making today that Tom Seaver made less than $7 million over the totality of his career. And we'll throw that quickly into context by saying Dallas Keichel. On uh, the Chicago White Sox this year was set to be making 18 million for the year. Again, Tom Seaver, less than 7 million for the career. In sad news, Tom Seaver was diagnosed with dementia, and it was announced last year in 2019 that he would no longer be making any public appearances. The disease really taking a toll, and it makes it even sadder that it wasn't until last year that the Mets renamed the street outside of City Field in Flushing, New York to Seaver Way. So the address for the New York Mets, their stadium now is 41 Seaver Way. There's a statue that's going to be put up in the near future. I mean, we know COVID is changing some things, but these are things that Tom Seaver, I'm sure, would have really enjoyed being a part of and unfortunately was not able to be there for the renaming of the street and won't be able to be there for the statue, wasn't able to be there for the celebration of the 69 Mets last year. So we wish Tom Seaver well as we hope he lives out his life doing what he loves. His daughter, who was there when they renamed the street Seaver Way in front of City Field, said that her dad always taught them to, quote, find what's in your heart and do it to the best of your ability. Something I think we all need a little reminder on from time to time. As an interesting side note, as it was 35 years ago yesterday that Tom Seaver won his 300th game, it was 27 years ago yesterday that another White Sox legend, Robin Ventura, made the worst decision of his professional career and decided he was going to charge the mound after Nolan Ryan hit him With a pitch. The interesting thing about that is the fight is now older than Ventura was at the time. Ventura was 26 at the time. It's been 27 years since that particular incident. And Robin Ventura likes to joke that everywhere he goes, that is still brought up. It's an event that certainly will not get away from Robin Ventura. And I just want to mention, too, I was also at Nolan Ryan's 300th win game. Which happened on July thirty first, nineteen ninety, was a much easier one to get to. It was against the Milwaukee Brewers, so we just able to hop in the car, go up north to Brewers Stadium, and watch the eleven to three win as the Texas Rangers at the time beat the Brewers. I mean, the game was not as impressive as Tom Seaver's because Seaver went all nine complete game. Ryan went seven and two thirds, but he had such a big lead. There was no reason for him to keep going out there. And Nolan Ryan and Tom Seaver are an interesting comparison when you look at the way they pitch because Nolan Ryan was an enigma. Nolan Ryan's a guy who was throwing every bit as hard at the end of his career 20 plus years in that he was on day one. Tom Seaver lost a little bit of the fastball, but he gained so much more in being able to nibble away and play the mental game. So Ryan was more of a physical pitcher. Tom Seaver definitely more of a mental pitcher. Both of them legends when it comes to Major League Baseball. And again, something I don't think we're going to see a whole lot moving forward. Now, at that game where Robin Ventura went after Nolan Ryan. There was another guy who may make the Hall of Fame in attendance because he was playing for Team USA and they brought the team in and they wanted uh, Robin Ventura to say a few words to him, you know, about sportsmanship and all that thing, you know, give him the rah-rah speech to the young kids playing for Team USA. And one of the kids on that team was a young Paul Canerico who would go on to be a White Sox legend, first baseman, World Series hero in 2005, and a guy that was the epitome of the workman out on the field. Now, they asked Paul Kanerka later if he thought any less of Robin Ventura that day as a kid, and he said, "Quote, no, that made me think nothing less of him, only more, because anybody who's going to charge Nolan Ryan, you gotta have, you gotta have some guts." Let's just put it that way, Paulie said. And Canerco is a guy, again, very hard nosed, very blue collar. There was a game back in 2010 against the Minnesota Twins at Sox Park. In the first inning, Canerco comes up, gets hit in the face, knocks him down. Nobody can believe when Canerco gets up and decides he's going to trot down to first and stay in the game. Canerco comes up in the third inning. Hits one out of the park, first pitch he saw. You know, that's the kind of guy that the fans are going to rally behind. These are the players, these are the things that could make baseball a great sport once again. If Major League Baseball would open up their eyes, open up their ears, and realize we don't want politics in our baseball, we don't want constant rule changes, we don't want it to be hard to be able to view. Our local teams' games without having a cable subscription. There is so much that could be done for Major League Baseball to be more fan accessible. But unfortunately, the current regime, the current commissioner just don't seem to have a clue. And I hope that changes someday because as you could probably tell, I complain a lot about baseball, and there's a reason because I like the sport and I love what it once was, and I believe we're not too far gone yet. Something can still be done in baseball, just like the country, to make things better, to get us back on the right track, and I hope that is in the near future, but I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I do have a couple people to thank for today's show. The first one is an anonymous donation that came in via check and a note just saying that the last episode from last Wednesday was much appreciated every now and then we get one right. What can I say? And we also have to thank Brian Ganak from over on our Patreon site, which I mean, he's the sole guy. So we appreciate that, Brian, like we're doing over on Grumpy Old Ben's, the podcast they do with Ryan Bemrose. If you're on Patreon, the first show of a month we're going to thank everybody that's on Patreon, so We can do it all that way and not forget anybody. But we do appreciate everybody that is listening to the show, that is supporting the show, that is donating to the show. There's a lot of things you can do. One, if you haven't subscribed yet, go over to randomthoughts.com, R-A-N-D-U-M-B, thoughts.com. Click one of those subscribe buttons. Rate and review the show anywhere that you can. And of course, if you feel like you got some value from the show, we work on the value for value model and the way to take part in that is to go to randomthoughts.com, click on that little donate button, use the QR code if you want to do the Bitcoin thing or find our PO box address if you'd like to send something in the old snail mail way. They all work and they are all very much appreciated. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so at Darren, D-A-R-R-E-N, at randomthoughts.com, R-A-N-D-U-M-B, thoughts.com. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter, Darren O'Neill, D-A-R-R-E-N-O-N-E-I-L-L, or Random Podcast, R-A-N-D-U-M-B Podcast. Have a great week. We'll be back with you next Wednesday. But until then, I am Darren O'Neill. Thanks for listening.